You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Recording started. Hey, I want to thank everybody for being here this evening. The Matrixic Discussion Group. Uh, this is for the group of Tactical Sovereignty. Actually, been around for a while on Facebook. But I want to get into a lot of the deceptions that people fall into. I'm going to be talking uh, specifically really tonight, I think, about the Magna Carta. And this also goes hand in hand with the U.S. Constitution in a way, whether people realize this or not. There's some serious similarities there. We need to realize that all through time, if you research history, things that happened supposedly even in the Dark Ages, even go back to the BC era, all right, you're going to find over and over again that there's really always been one main battle. And the battle has been for the human mind. Because if they can control how you think, what you think, what you believe, what you know, or more importantly, what you think you know, because what you think you know is probably more dangerous for you than even what you do know, then they've won the game if they have that control. And because and that's a control that they've always tried to seek. Uh, I don't know if anybody noticed here over my shoulder, uh, that's the throne where the Pope sits, okay? And the Pope is going to tie into this very, very much this evening. And one of the things I'm going to be touching on as well, keep in the back of your mind, is something called a supervening legality. Supervening legality. Because that plays a huge role with many things. When it comes to really controlling the mind of people, I know one of the things I researched was uh, voting. And when different countries uh, started having their vote, their popular vote, and it was interesting that well within under 30 years, probably closer to within 15 to 20 years of each other, all of these countries started having a popular vote. And it happened uh, shortly after the USA had started having their popular vote, which was argued upon quite a bit in the Constitutional Convention. And I know I've talked to people, you know, like every four years, somebody's going to ask me, or more than one person will ask me, well, who are you voting for this year? And I'll laugh to them, and I'll explain to them, you know, the uh, Constitutional Convention, what happened there. And George Mason, one of his biggest arguments was uh, letting the common man vote would be like giving a blind man his choice of colors, you know, and sprouted out of that was the electoral college is what they'd settled on as far as presidential elections go. So, you know, you explain it's the electoral college really chooses. It's not us. And you can go back and see that there's been 
many, many times that the Electoral College did not go the direction of the popular vote because a lot of people will argue, oh, yeah, but they have to do with the popular vote. No, they don't. And there's been many instances where that has not happened at. And so if they had to go in the direction of the popular vote, there would be no such thing as Electoral College. It wouldn't be necessary. It wouldn't be needed. They wouldn't utilize it. And so, no, the popular vote means squat. It is up to the Electoral College uh, to make it, these decisions. The, the Holy Roman Empire actually did something very similar back in the day. Is They, they would have uh, a board of electors that would make choices, I guess, to even like who the Pope would be. Um, they would use that to make decisions. <clears throat> so it's not a new concept. Uh, and, and nothing really is new. It's just a lot of uh, reworked and rehashed old programs done over and over again. But unfortunately, at the end of a conversation like that, whoever I'm talking to will say, oh, they, they completely understand. They, they comprehend. They know what I'm talking about. They agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they say, but, you know, I'm still wondering who you're going to vote for. And it's like, wow. <clears throat> the indoctrination is so thick that it goes in one ear and right out the other for people. Because they have their set in their head that they think they know something when they don't. They have no clue whatsoever. And as much as they even repeat the correct words, they still have it stuck in their head that it's a totally different way. It's something totally different. And as far as voting, it was something really that it did two things two very important things um one good for us and them and another that's not so good for us and them uh, the first thing it did <clears throat> is it made people feel like they were a part of something like they felt they had a hand in the outcome of something they, they, they had a feeling of maybe membership or something along those lines but though at the same time what it does it's far worse in my opinion is it is an act it is a participation and many times it's your participation in things that prove a contract for instance and your participation in voting is your consent you're showing your consent to how the system works through your participation in it as if you did not agree with something, you would not participate in it. Uh, there's many things that we don't do in life. Why? Because, you know, uh, maybe you don't go to a certain restaurant because you don't like the kind of food there. Um, if you're a Republican, you're not going to go to a Democratic convention because you don't agree with what goes on there. But then again, everybody runs out to the polls and votes. And what are they doing? That They're proving their consent to how things operate. Uh, myself, I don't know how you could consent to the slaughter of millions around the world, um, let alone the unborn, even within this country. We've lost a generation. People don't know the numbers. We've lost a generation. You consent to that? Or are you participating in it? So that was one mind game that was used on people. And if you notice as well, 
for instance, when the Pledge of Allegiance was created. Uh, that was created by a gentleman actually was a member of a Christian Democratic Party. And shortly after that time is when a lot of the wars really started sprouting up. You know, we had our antebellum or anti-war period of time prior to the Civil War. But after the Civil War, things were a little more mellow. There were some skirmishes here and there, but nothing really big until the first war in World War II. And then Korean War, Vietnam War. And we've been in a perpetual state of war since then. But you look at just prior to the big world wars when the Pledge of Allegiance was started, and that, that was another way of getting these things ingrained in the people's minds. You know, all, all of a sudden, their subconscious was taken over. And, you know, they became these flag-waving, uh, firework-popping Fourth of July people. And they never really even stop and think what it is that they think they're defending. In fact, very often they think they're defending one thing when it's something else altogether different from that. And you even take that word allegiance and look at it. Take the word religion and look at it. They, they both have allegio from Latin as part of the root word, which means to bind. Well, religion is what? To bind again. What is allegiance? You're all bound. We're binding, we're binding us all to this. Is this really what you're supposed to be bound to? Is this really where your legio is supposed to be? Absolutely not. Then the same thing happened back at the time that the Magna Carta was written. You know, these people, who do they turn to? They turn to their king for help. Uh, just like the Revolutionary War, people have a lot of deception with that. It's the same thing with the Magna Carta, a lot of deception there. Is people think that there was an argument against taxation. Well, it really wasn't the little people that were getting taxed. They weren't the ones really fighting it. They weren't the ones that were really angry about it. It was the barons at the time of the Magna Carta. It was the big landowners it was the guys really doing the big money movements in the country those were the guys getting affected the most the same as with the revolutionary war right? it wasn't the little people who was getting taxed it was the shop owners it was the store owners it was the people in control of the money yeah, those were the people having to pay those were the people that were upset that's probably why you hear those three percent, you know, that, that came out uh, fighting against it. It didn't affect the common guy, and so eventually the Constitution was written for the United States for that company, and it wasn't for the common man. It was for these people who were creating a new company, a new nation to protect their butt, and it was the same thing with the Magna Carta. There's several things in the Madden Carta that have been um, talked about quite a bit. Three main characteristics of it that have been upheld. And one was the freedom of the church. And when you think of the church, you know, um, think of this place here behind me. Okay. Think of the Vatican. Think of the Catholic Church. That's, that's the church when you hear of the church pretty much any time. 
um, it was for that protection. And it was also for the liberty of the city of London and for the towns. It was for the liberties of those establishments. And third, what is most commonly pointed to by people like in the freedom movement or whatever you want to call it, would be the freedom of the free man, because the free man is listed in the Magna Carta. And that's one of the things that's talked about quite often, too. Unfortunately, most people don't really realize what that free man is that it was referring to back then. Um, much like I say with the Bible, that people need to realize, you know, there's things in there that might be useful to you or for you, but it wasn't written to you. It was written to people at a different time. And so was the Magna Carta. So you have to comprehend what a free man was at the time of the Magna Carta. At the time of the Magna Carta, a free man was somebody who had been a serf or a slave to one of the landlords, and he had been released. He had been set free. He, of course, still had stipulations on him and things like that, but that's who it was being referred to. And so for people today in, say, the freedom movement, you know, to see that word, you know, free man and think, oh, that's us, that's us. <clears throat> All right, that's you. Uh, were, were you a slave or a serf uh, to a landlord uh, back around 1200 A.D. or in the 1300s A.D., early 1300s? I, I don't think so. Much is the same with a lot of people that want to point at the Sedekev Act of 1666. At that time, the city of London is going through well, maybe something more real than what we've gone through the past couple years. They're going through an illness at the time. And from what I've read, it looked like their idea really to eradicate it was, you know, to burn everything down, you know. And one of the issues that they had at that time is that there was a lot of landowners, a lot of store owners, things like that, a lot of business owners. And so the, those properties and things that they had were held in trust. That was this part of the Sedeke Act. Things were put in trust. And so when those people came back to town again and wanted to claim that, yeah, I'm back, I'm Sedeke, I'm a proof of life, I'm here, I'm reclaiming my property, that way they would be able to reclaim their property. And so when people today are trying to want to use that specifically for them, it's like, wait a minute, you owned land in London almost 400 years ago? I mean, how many people, most of them haven't even been, you know, over to that continent of Great Britain or to Europe. So how in the world does this even apply? It's for a different nation almost 400 years ago. That just absolutely makes zero sense whatsoever. Uh, to me, it makes about as much sense as people thinking that they are a member or a party to the Constitution, uh, even when the Paddleford case tells you you're not a party to it. Point blank. Look up the Paddleford case. And then when they read the preamble and they see we the people, I think, oh, that's us. Oh, my God. They get all the warm fuzzies inside. Oh, sorry. You're not we the people. And if you read a few lines further down, it'll say, we do this for ourselves and our posterity. That means we do it for 
us and for our children, for our lineage. And there's a few people that have claimed lineage back to some of those founders. Well, good. You know, try and utilize that. See if it does anything good for you. You know, myself, I wouldn't really want to be a party to it. Like I said, that this goes right back to participation and consent in something. You're showing that you agree to it. You agree with the actions that a certain company takes and the things that they do at home and abroad. It just it makes absolutely no sense to me. And one of the things I think I find the most frustrating with this is that it's pounded into people's head, pounded into their ears over and over again, multiple times a day, and, and they don't really stop and even think about it. You hear it from the talking heads on TV or on the radio. You hear some of these people talk about our Constitution or our government or our president. I'm, I'm sorry. Those are all lies, all complete lies. That word our has no place in it whatsoever. You're not a party to any of those things. Um, if anybody thinks they are, go talk to people from January 6th. Find out if that really is your house. If that really is, well, yeah, it is the people's house. But guess what? You're not the people. Who is the people? The people are your representatives. That's who the people are. You can find that information if you dig. And, you know, find, I've, I've talked to retired judges. They tell you the same exact thing. That, that's who the people are. Because you've basically given up your power of attorney through the voter's status. You've given it up to who? Your representatives. Why do you think they're called representatives? They are standing as you. They are the people. They are in representation. They are the people making the decisions. They are the, we, the people. And then we're back at the time of the Constitutional Convention as well. And so um, that's kind of a head scratcher to me. I mean, to me, it's these, these are basic concepts that I think people just don't stop and think about. But I spoke about a supervening legality in the beginning. And, and that's something I want to touch on here. Because this comes very much into play with uh, the Magna Carta or known maybe in English as the Great Charter of 1215 by King John. There had been an argument between King John and the Pope uh, leading up to this time, a couple years earlier. And the Pope wanted to put in as an archbishop, a gentleman by name of Langston. And King John did not agree. And King John was like, this is my land, this is my country, uh, I want to put in who I want to put in. Uh, and the Pope said, okay, fine. He said, guess what? There's not going to be any more ceremonies at the church. No more mass, no more consecrations, no more penance for the people. You guys are cut off. It, it was an interdict that the Pope had put forward. That was, um, sorry, that, that the Pope had put forward at that time. And he was like, hey, I'll show John who's really the boss here. And you have to realize that at that time, uh, and actually probably even almost still today, if people really realized it, the king or queen, whoever's holding that seat, that king is also the head of the Church of England. Um, 
King Henry went through <laughs> issues regarding this as well. People remember situation with him and his wives wanting to have a son, right? The king is also seen as the head of the Church of England. And so Pope Innocent III said, okay, I'm, I'm going to show you who really is the boss here. And he was going to cut off everything for the people. And that really, I mean, that, that was, you know, a form of putting heat on the king because then the people, you know, would maybe revolt back up against him. But in his heart, King John felt, oh, my gosh, it's just not a matter of being cut off from the Vatican or the church. It's a matter of being cut off from heaven. You know, that, that was the real fear of King John. And uh, King John, actually, in his youth, uh, was referred to as John Lackland. And if you comprehend the term Lackland or someone owning no land or having no land, you know, he had uh, no sense about him. He, he wasn't strong. He was weak. Okay, that, that was the reference to him in, when he was younger, John Lackland. And so, you know, John, King John freaked out that, oh, my gosh, I've been cut off from heaven, you know. And so he decided he was going to have to have a concession with uh, Pope Innocent III. And so he wrote up, it looks like about a two-page document to me. It might have been just one page, tiny handwriting back at that time. But yeah, he wrote up a concession, you know, to make peace with Pope Innocent III. And what he did in this concession is that he relinquished England, Ireland, and its rights and its territories to Pope Innocent. And not just to Pope Innocent, but also to all of his Catholic successors and swore fealty and liege and homage and perpetual obligation. <laughs> and if he backed out from that deal, he would lose the crown. That was done back around, I think it was written in 1212 and uh, was really put into action in 1213 with Pope Innocent III. You might have noticed in there that one of the things that he swore was his fealty and his liege. Uh, remember I just spoke about liege a little bit ago regarding religion and allegiance, legio. That, that Latin term, he bound himself. He bound himself and he bound the land and the territory of England. He was also uh, Duke of Norway, um, also Lord of Ireland. He bound all of them to the Pope and to the Vatican and to the successors. And in fact, in that session, when I say session, it's spelled with a C. So think of the word concede. He conceded these lands and its possessions all to the Pope and to the Catholic Church and the successors. And when you read the term successors, well, when it comes to the Vatican, that's most often used to terminize the Pope as being a successor of Peter, of St. Peter, right? So all the following 
popes as well would be um, successors to Peter, who was supposedly the founder of the Catholic Church of the Vatican. So that's what it's referring to there. So here we see a little problem. We see a little issue. And this is what's called a supervening legality. One time I heard somebody describing a supervening legality as a situation where somebody pushed somebody off like a 10-story building. <clears throat> but just as the other man was falling off the building, somebody else that didn't like him saw him, pulled out their gun, shot the guy in the head. He lands on the ground. They go and they do an autopsy, try and decide, you know, what killed this guy. And the autopsy is going to come back and say, oh, it was a shot to the head. That was a supervening legality. Not the guy that pushed him off the top of the roof, but the guy that shot him in the head. Well, this is an exact same scenario to this. It just has about a year or two separation between it. Uh, two years, actually, separation between it. Because in 1213, King John had pledged everything to the Vatican to Pope Innocent III and his successors. And then two years later, he writes the Magna Carta. And one of the things you hear a lot of people in the freedom movement scream is, you know, if they sign a contract, oh, I did it under duress. You know, if I didn't do that, this was going to happen. So it was under duress, which means it's null and void. Okay, well, you can just use that very simple idea and look at the Magna Carta. Because King John was forced to sign that at the tip of the spear by the nobleman. It was signed under duress. So did that hold any legality? It shouldn't have. Absolutely not. But if you really go into the overwhelming evidence of the Magna Carta meaning nothing and being nothing legitimate in law, you look at the fact that two years earlier, the Pope or the King John had already signed everything over to Pope Innocent III. So there's no way he would be able to state the things in the Magna Carta he did. He was out of control. He could no longer say who had rights and who should be protected and who shouldn't be protected because guess what? None of those lands or the subjects of the land, or at that time, you would say citizens of the land, citizen and subject is the same thing. And they both mean slave. But those subjects at that time were also now under the Pope, belonged to the Pope, the Holy Father. Why do you think he's called the Holy Father? Well, what's he the father of? Father of everything. And it doesn't really just stop there with the Magna Carta. Now, it, you do see Magna Carta um, is been identified in court cases and used in court cases and things before. And that, that's all fine and well. I've seen a lot of court cases where there's been things used by the defense that held absolutely zero weight, meant absolutely nothing. Even people trying to use, like, for instance, like I mentioned, the Sedeke Act, all right, <clears throat> doesn't mean anything. Uh, but those three edicts that in it that I mentioned earlier have been upheld in different writings, uh, like I said, which was the freedom of the church. Uh, the freedom of the towns, and the freedom of the free man with the specific definition of free man. But all, all those things were things that 
would be more enabling to the Vatican than anything. So, of course, those things would have been upheld and would have been re-ratified years later by other kings. But let's go and go back to the U.S. Constitution again. And even look at the Constitution before the one that we know of that was written in Philadelphia. Let's look at the Articles of Confederation. That was the first Constitution uh, really observed. That's the first time the United States of America was really observed on an international level. And it was observed in 1803 after the Revolutionary War. And it was observed in the Treaty of Peace in Paris, um, the treaty that would end that war, that end the Revolutionary War. And you look at that treaty and see what that treaty says. Same thing, right in the beginning of it, it's stating who's writing it and who it is. And not just who it is, but what they are, what titles they hold that's writing it. It was written by the King of France. I find it curious. It wasn't until about 50 years later that there really became much of a a stronger separation between France and England. But at this time, the King of France, it, it was a dual crown. The King of France also wore the hat or the crown of England as well. Um, these two countries, if people don't know their geography, are kind of right next to each other. There's always been skirmishes with, you know, France going and usurping some of the land from England. And even at the time of King John, he was looked down upon because he wouldn't go back and try and fight for those lands and take lands back or anything like that. But uh, the situation was a dual crown. And go and look at that treaty that was written there in Paris. Uh, Look at this king and who he was. He's named as the arch-treasurer. He's named as the prince-elector. Are there really higher positions when it comes to control? He wasn't just a general arch-treasurer or, generally speaking, a prince-elector, but the arch-treasurer and prince-elector of the United States of America. When does the one who loses a war get to write the treaty and get to write down the edicts for the treaty and who's going to do what, where the boundaries are going to lay, who's going to pay who money? Wait till I get to the money issue. That's going to be kind of a, uh, maybe a light bulb moment for you when it comes to this session that King John made to the Pope. But we need to stop and think about that with that treaty for ending the Revolutionary War. And try and connect a couple dots here and think about this. If King John had given over England and Ireland, Normandy to the Vatican and to Pope Innocent III and his successors, in perpetuity, forever, with the threat of losing his crown. Oh, how did he keep his crown? I'll get to that. 
if that was the case, and then the United States of America came about about 200 years later, and everything done here was under charter of the king and under land grants from the king, both the king of France and the king of England at the time, same situation. Then whose land was this here? It also belonged, by proxy, belonged to the Vatican, belonged to the Pope. I don't know if people remember when, I think it was Pope John Paul uh, flew into New York back, I think this was have been the 80s, 82, 83, 84 maybe. When he got off the plane, what did he do? He knelt down and kissed the ground. Did he kiss the ground because he had been airsick and, oh, my gosh, we're finally back on terra firma. I'm so happy. No. He kissed the ground because it was his motherland. It's his land. He owns it. He's kissing his property. It spelled it out right there in the Paris Peace Treaty. The king, who had given everything away to the Vatican, was also claiming to be the arch treasurer and prince elector. But how is he still wearing that crown? How is he still allowed to wear that crown? It's kind of interesting. What would be the smart thing for the Vatican to do? What would be the smart thing for the Pope to do? Simple. Rent it back to him. Let him pay for it. That way, now he really has a dog in the hunt. He's not just afraid of losing the crown if he goes against that session that he made to the Pope back in 1213. But now he could also possibly lose the crown if he doesn't make payments back to the Vatican. What were those payments? The payments were 666 pounds, British pounds. 666. It also translated at that time to a thousand sterling marks. And I found that number 666 to be kind of interesting there. So everything was sold in what's commonly known of as the free world for 666 British pounds. Wow. So we need to realize, you know, whether we hear these talking heads on TV talking about, you know, our government or our president, or, or you hear lectures when they're talking about how great the Magna Carta was and this and that, how strong it is and powerful it is and things like that, that you're just being fed a line of crap, basically. You're just being indoctrinated to think that there's power in something where there is no power. Because guess what they're not going to tell you? They're not going to tell you this backstory. They're not going to tell you the backstory I just told you. If anybody has a question about this session that King John made, I will put it in the notes uh, when this goes up to YouTube. So you can go in the description box. I'll pop it in there. People can go in there and read it. And Pope John actually covered the bases very, very thoroughly as far as everything going to the Pope, 
going to the Vatican and going to the successors of that office. The people who are today sitting on this seat right up here, right up here. <laughs> yeah, you don't see the president of the USA sitting on a throne like that, do you? It's the ruler of the world. It's the rulers of the world. But even the Pope is just a figurehead, just like the president is. Now, there's other societies behind it. And look at the ones that run the Ivy League colleges. You might get closer to who they are and what everything is really about. I think this is equally important as to what I tell people every week. Learn who you really are, where you're really from, and where you're really at. Because you've been deceived on all of these things. You've been told that you are a party to things that you are not a party to. And then when you try and use them, it gets thrown back in your face. And you quickly realize, yeah, something's wrong. It's time to start figuring out what's wrong. You're not going to change your community. You're not going to come together as a bunch of other citizens and form anything and make any changes to anything because you're just going to be seen as a bunch of slaves getting together. You got to first start making some changes with yourself, make some changes at home, make some changes with who and what you are. You've got to put the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on your infant when a plane is going down. Same thing here. You've got to make sure that your position is secure before you can join with other people and as a unit really make things happen. But it can be done. I posted a link earlier today to something that happened in New York uh, with the anti-renters a number, a number of years, a hundred years ago. And they all got together and decided they weren't going to pay their fealty to their landlords at the time. And when they joined, they were actually able to push the sheriff back and take care of the problem, even to the point where finally the state decided that they needed to start rewriting some of their laws on how things were done. Otherwise, even the USA was going to end up very much like the way England was run a couple hundred years ago. And they knew that really wouldn't turn out good because the people were revolting. They would actually, they were doing something, physically doing something. And at that time, people were able to. Nowadays, the masses are a little too brainwashed. We all have to start at home. We all have to start with ourselves. It's just the bottom line. Hope everybody has a good night. Be blessed. And like I said, take a look in the description box. And I will pop that concession in of King John to Pope Innocent III. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.